Bonjour, hi, I'm Pascal Auclair. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. J'espère que cet enseignement vous sera aidant. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed. Vous pouvez me soutenir en cliquant sur le bouton sous ma photo. Your support is greatly appreciated. Merci. So the way we um, habitually go about uh, finding happiness is um, as worldlings, untrained hearts and minds. The way we habitually go about finding happiness is by the satisfaction of thirst. There's a thirst, a desire for something, and getting it uh, is what we think of as happiness. The Buddhist, Buddhist approach is very different. It, um, it's about non-thirst. And um, so the practice that we do here is to actually get interested amongst many things, uh, get interested in thirst, desire, wanting to have wanting to be or not be. <laughs> and we look at this and maybe uh, it is revealed to us that there is, um, although it seems like it's talking about happiness, when you get this, you will be happy. I promise. <laughs> yes. Although it seems to be talking about happiness, when we pay closer attention, what we find is a direct experience, an immediate experience of lack. Something is lacking here. And so we um, could say this, this uh, subterf, subterfuge in French. So, so. <laughs> It's not Pali tonight, it's French. <laughs> so, this subterfuge is revealed. Yeah? Although it speaks of happiness and it's pointing towards it, the experience is more closer to the experience of the, the carrot for the horse, you know, like the famous carrot that is dingling, you know, keeps you going. This is uh, known to be the cause of our suffering, the uh, desire, the tanha. There's another word that is used also is upadana, translated as maybe attachment or clinging. The one literal translation is fuel. So clinging or attachment as the fuel for suffering. So tonight, in the true Buddhist um, spirit, I would like to present a list <laughs> of a number of things. <laughs> so there's, there's two variants in there. It's the number and the things. So tonight, the number is four. The lucky number is four. And the theme is uh, attachment. So the four different kind of attachments. Um, the first time I uh, ever practiced uh, uh, and learned about the Buddhist practice in Thailand, uh, that was part of that week of retreat this teaching was given. And I found that particular list extremely practical, very useful to see how freaking out, it's another translation for upadana, <laughs> happens, getting bugged by, getting tight around, yeah, uh, clinging happens. So these four fields, um, 
our sensual desire, clinging about sensual desire, clinging uh, onto views and opinions. Can you relate? <laughs> clinging to um, uh, the classic uh, naming of this third one is uh, rites and rituals. Clinging to rites and rituals. And then the last one is uh, this, um, this month or this six weeks favorite is clinging to uh, self or idea of self or another Pali word, moi. <laughs> clinging to things as moi or mine. Yeah. So these are the four fields I would like to explore a bit tonight. Um, so, the human uh, predicament, we find ourselves here in this life, sensitive, with senses. It means we're um, constantly impacted, impinged upon, I think is one uh, word. And uh, Annie described it very well yesterday. So the, the human predicament is that we have senses, we're sensitive. So we're uh, uh, constantly encountering pleasantness and unpleasantness. And it m makes sense, know that if, you, if you, are, you have sensitivity, many doors of sensitivity, and that there can be an, an, an experience of uh, enjoyment of this sensitivity, it would make sense that one would try to uh, accumulate or turn towards the pleasantness rather than the unpleasantness. And so uh, there's this search that can happen for the pleasantness. And we've talked about this also uh, a lot. Um, and so... Um, I was reading something where it was saying that um, I'm coming back to the idea of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality as bubbles. In that example, is what it was, um, it was um, presented as winds. It's saying to actually uh, get all worked up and want to have pleasantness rather than unpleasant in this way that we go about a lot. It's a little bit like if somebody was fighting against winds, wet winds, or dry winds, or cold winds, or warm winds, wanting the warm winds to be cold, or wanting the wet ones to be dry, it would be mad, you know? Yet, this is a lot of what we do uh, in our life, is try to make pleasant stay, or make unpleasant uh, become pleasant. Uh, so there's a lot of this happening. There's a system that uh, I like a lot to think, uh, to use to look at this. It's a, you might have heard about this. Uh, it's a Buddhist. Uh, it comes from a few different suttas of the Buddha where it talks about gratification, danger, and escape. And in one sutta that I'm paraphrasing now, the Buddha says, why or the Buddha to be or talking about him earlier, let's say, why... Um, do I still do this? Why do I keep repeating this certain pattern here? Because I see only the gratification. If I saw the dangers, or the drawback, or um, the disadvantage of this, then it would be easy to find the escape, the freedom from this. So the, I think of it as a little system of gratification, danger, and escape. So the gratification or enjoyment often is very obvious. We say that with sense pleasure, the danger are hidden, unlike blazing fire or very sharp uh, tool or weapon that you could see right away. The danger is obvious, 
But with sense pleasure, it's not clear because it's enjoyable. Yeah? So we need, with this practice, to me, that's a lot of what we do. We become more realistic about that aspect, many other aspects of reality, but that aspect of uh, the unreliabil- uh, unreliability of, of pleasure, of sense pleasure. So that's one of the danger that becomes more obvious. Another of the danger is that uh, it's, um, there's an agitation when we look for it. When I want pleasantness, there's a price to pay that comes with it. It's the agitation. And here it can become, in the silence of meditation, of the retreat center, it can become very, uh, like an echo, very strong echo that I find how agitated I get. Because getting what I want is hard. Not getting what I want is hard if I don't get it. If I get it, keeping it is hard. And when I lose it, it's hard. (laughs) So there's no point in there where there might be the enjoyment, but the stress can be there the whole time also. So a way that I think about this is that the pleasures at the sense door, the five senses, maybe I'm thinking now. Even the sixth, the pleasure of uh, nice ideas, beautiful ideas. You know, I want beautiful ideas. I want to think about fantasies, for example. They're pleasant. So the way I like to think about it, the words that come in my mind is low-quality happiness. It's kind of cheap happiness. Maybe they can be instant gratification. It can be uh, available quickly in some instances. But it's very cheap because it's unreliable. It's changing. It's conditional. It depends on many things to happen. Um, There's one little story that uh, I like to tell about this. It's kind of dramatic, but maybe that's my... Anyway. just to show us how to highlight one version of how pleasantness uh, is conditional. So, so in the past, not this summer, but the summer before, was with my partner. Uh, and we had the chance to go to the countryside to spend the day. And so we were going to go in a place where there were um, a river in the, in the park, kind of a forest, and there was going to be a, a river there where you can, and that's actually what we were doing, and it was really fun. At that exact time of year, the waterfalls, there's waterfalls there, and uh, the, the water is just falling at this volume or speed or pressure that you can actually, uh, if you get the right angle, and that's a fun part of the thing, is if you get the right angle, you can go under the waterfall, and then you're hidden under the waterfall and there's a wall of water in front of you and the light is diffused and there's several of these waterfalls that you can go under. So we were there with my partner and it was beautiful, very green, beautiful day, warm sun, refreshing water going in and out of the, of the water. So very, very pleasant as, at the sense door there. Yeah? And so at some point, uh, my partner is sitting on a rock with the light, and it's very beautiful, and I find him beautiful, so I take the camera out to take a picture of this. And uh, I like to take pictures, so I spend a few minutes there, like trying this angle and with the, uh, like this for a few seconds. And on the other side of the river, there was a group of um, male that were there, men, young men. And for them, there was just a little too long of a man taking picture of another man. There was just something that they recognized there. We hadn't kissed. We knew about that. <laughs> you know? and, but the taking picture got their adrenaline and their testosterone <laughs> going. So uh, they started to uh, shout things. And there was a lot of, because of the waterfall, we couldn't really hear, but... It was pretty clear what was uh, going on. And it was very interesting to see how suddenly the enjoyment, the, pleasure, the 
pleasure in the greenery, the sun, the waterfalls. The pressure hadn't changed. The, there was no cloud that had, had come. It was still beautiful, uh, you know, suffused of chlorophyll environment, very green. But the capacity to enjoy it, completely gone. Unreliable. Yeah? I told you it was going to be dramatic. <laughs> but that's part of reality, apparently. Yeah. And I can say also that as a, I like to add, I think that as a white male, this kind of, um, I'm not exposed very often to this kind of, um, to uh, danger like this or oppression in this way. I've been very, very much spared from that. So it was very, very, uh, uh, um, well, it would be for anyone, it was, uh, it was uh, triggering in a major way. And, uh, and so the idea that I want to give here is the idea of um, low quality of happiness that we can have from the senses, the pleasure at the sense doors. And then there's a different kind of... Um, something that has more value and more depth to it. And I could see that at that moment at the river, maybe not in the first few minutes, but soon enough, there was a gathering of uh, something in the heart-mind that was of greater value. There was some clarity in the heart-mind. There was some uh, clarity about where, you know, uh, something about hate and how it should not, the message of hate that was given should not be believed in. You know, there was some, some clarity that was uh, protective, that was, uh, there was a level of freedom that one could gain access to. And it was a completely different aspect of reality, where it was suddenly very clear that if one is to put some eggs in some basket, that would be the basket to put the eggs in. Um, do you follow me here? That the looking for pleasantness didn't have so much depth as clarity about the world, clarity about uh, uh, what one can or cannot be, about uh, nonviolence, about the value of nonviolence and understanding. Maybe I don't find the right words tonight, but I bet you can make your way into this here. In the same, uh, I can use the same example, maybe, I'll try, to see, uh, say how um, latent tendency that we have in the mind, latent tendency to greed, want the pleasure, the pleasure latent tendency to hate uh, what is unpleasant. Yeah? Uh, this tendency uh, has an impact on perception. The senses that are such beautiful doorways for understanding and liberation, for wisdom, this is what we're using here. We're using the senses to find uh, the way towards freedom for oneself and for others. The latent tendencies of the mind can actually hijack the senses so that the senses become slave, if I can use that word, to this tendency. So that the eyes, the ears, can become radars looking for satisfaction, looking for pleasantness. And we live in that often, or looking for something to um, push away. Yeah? So, and, and perception is, um, is uh, distorted by this, these tendencies of mine. So that I go around and I, because there is this looking for pleasure, there will be a projection. Oh, pleasure is in this. It's not inherent in this thing, but the mind will project it. One very... Um, uh, a uh, classic example is the Vipassana romance at the retreat center. That the mind 
will project onto something complete satisfaction. <laughs> the soulmate, you know, this is the person, you know, or this will solve, solve my boredom, solitude, you know, this person. And suddenly there's this, I remember when a yogi one year describing, like, it was good because they could see their mind, they were saying like, this person that I zeroed in on, <laughs> like the mind is, is projecting like so much happiness. Like I, I see us traveling in India together <laughs> for years and years and, you know, and having kids and, you know, and, and the whole thing. And, and I was like, but in India, you guys are going to get sick? Or I was like, no, <laughs> it's all going to be pleasant, you know, like... You know, nobody's going to get sick and it's going to be beautiful and comfortable always, you know. <laughs> and so the mind does that, can, uh, can hang on like this to, um, to experience or to find something to hate and, and uh, maybe the enjoyment even of hating, you know. So, um, so the, the pleasure at the sense door is unreliable, it's conditional. It's also because of the enjoyment itself, the danger is uh, hidden. It's the addiction that can come because of the enjoyment. So one has to be very, um, very much, uh, I think, mindful <laughs> when encountering pleasure. At the time of the Buddha, there was a, uh, there was a belief that uh, pleasure was the problem. So you would have to stay away from pleasure at all cost. So eat little, uh, don't lay down, you know, because if it gets pleasurable, you're going to be stuck. And in my understanding, I think, is that one of the Buddha's contribution to spirituality and freedom was that, hey, it's not the pleasure itself. It's the addiction, the compulsion, the clinging, the freaking out about the getting... Uh, uh, obsessed by, yeah? This is what we have to care for. So, uh, the way I present this with the word danger and, you know, there's this image of a, a licking honey on a razor's edge. I remember hearing that about sense pleasure and I was like, wow, this is heavy stuff, you know, like... <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> and so, just to remind us that what really hurts is not the pleasure itself, is the clinging. So, to bring attention to this in our practice, where is the clinging? Not the enjoyment itself that is the problem, because that's one of the wins. It will come, enjoyment, and it's possible to meet it. The best strategy uh, to meet it and to meet life, I think, is with mindfulness. Because if there is the presence of uh, pleasure and there is a knowing of its impermanent nature, then it can come through and be felt very much as when there is clinging, it's not possible to actually enjoy something because there is, the mind is bugged by fearing losing. Yeah? So, maybe uh, in our practice we can notice the absence of um, clinging or wanting, of the absence of desire for sense pleasure when it's present, and feel the freedom in that. And that experience of non-clinging sometimes is in the midst of uh, neutrality, in the midst of unpleasant or in the midst of pleasant experience, that the mind can meet in a very balanced way pleasantness so that actually it can get intimate with the experience of pleasantness at the sense door. Philip Moffat has an equation that I like. Uh, his equation is um, pleasantness times 
attachment, égal, equal, suffering. So, your pleasantness on the level of 1 to 10 times your level of attachment to it from, let's say, 1 to 10 equals the amount of suffering there will be. You could do the same with displeasure plus the amount of reactivity, the amount of not wanting. Yeah? And all the teachings from my teacher keep coming from uh, in my head, but I hear Christina Feldman sitting here and saying, to the amount that we're attached to pleasure, to the same amount, and it's not possible to do otherwise, to the same amount we will fear displeasure. That is not a fun situation to find oneself in. <laughs> fearing, wanting, fearing, wanting. Yeah, it's a lot of what we do here is to actually find balance and intimacy in the passages of a, a feeling tone at the sense doors. One way that uh, I've been taught also to think about this, so what are the ways that we deal with these tendencies of mind, tendencies to look for pleasure, and the tendency to, uh, of greed, and the tendency to reject what is unpleasant? Um, the first kind of um, baseline, and that, that is, please be here for this one. I think it's a very interesting one. <laughs> if it's possible. <laughs> um, so the first kind of a ba baseline, I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but first kind of line of defense, I'll call it like this. The first line of defense is sila. Knowing that in this uh, psyche, there will be confusion, there will be the presence of uh, greed, of, of believing that the pleasantness that I'll get from this will solve my problem. Knowing that there's confusion about what leads to what and what leads away from what, then I, f I have a first uh, line of defense which is called sila. I say, although I might want something very much, I'm going to give myself some rule, ethical rules, that I'm not going to break. So I'm not going to take what is not offered freely. Although I might want something, I really believe that this is what I actually need, I'm not going to break that line here. This is my outside line. There'll be confusion in here, but I, it won't leak outside in this way, in this dramatic way. Or because I want something so much, or want to promote myself in some way, that I'm going to actually tell uh, something that is not true. I said, no, I'm actually going to stick to honesty. You know? So that's a line of defense against these tendencies of the mind. The second line of defense that we work with also here is uh, um, samadhi, seclusion. So by uh, developing concentration, what happens is during the time of concentration, when it's well established, uh, the hindrances are gone. I'm secluded from the hindrances. There is not the wanting for something else. The full attention is given to breath, to sound, in a sustained way, to ease of the mind, to some object fully given to it. In that time, during that time, there's not, but I want something else, or I don't want this. There's not this has gone. And we can have this experience sometimes for a few seconds, sometimes for longer on retreat, where suddenly we're secluded. It is so good. It is so... Here's another way to live, where there's not this constant... But what I want is a little bit, just a little bit more comfort, or just a little bit more this, or mind a little like this. It's just like, wow, this is like this right now. Yeah? So sustained attention, concentration, can bring seclusion from these, uh, this wanting that is uh, so bugging us. And the third line, which is the most uh, important one maybe, is uh, panya, uh, wisdom, the uprooting of any confusion about uh, sense pleasure. The clarity, the complete clarity. Oh yeah, 
not providing anything sustainable of depth. Let me know it as it's here. The quality of the mind suddenly becoming clearly more, so much more important than what is being felt. The quality of resp responsiveness or the appropriate response. Yeah? Knowing deeply that some things can't provide and finding peace with that. So that's just the first of four sensual pleasure. I, I, I went away from it a bit and back and forth, but that, that's a field anyway there. And the second one that I want to talk about is views and opinions. So how the mind on retreat, off retreat, the mind can cling to views and opinion and the suffering in that, yeah? And it's very interesting that it follows on talking a lot about pleasantness and unpleasantness because uh, in the Buddhist teachings, we're invited to, in a very sober way, to look at our views and opinions and see that if they're really based on uh, reason and uh, great understanding or if they might be a little bit more shallow and based on feeling tone. And apparently, if we research this well, we might find that many of the views and opinions that we have are basically just starting from pleasantness and unpleasantness. So, um, you know, uh, there should be uh, it should be warmer in here. You have a view, an opinion that it should be warmer in here. How would that come about? You know, that this person should breathe differently. It's not a good way to breathe for them. Should actually write them a note <laughs> or offer my wisdom around breathing. You know, how would that opinion come about? Even uh, sometimes uh, getting news, I can see how my view about uh, peace is so shallow. It's not based on compassion, on, on the being touched by suffering and how the suffering could be re relieved, uh, you know, uh, if there is war, for example, or something. Sometimes it's just this reactivity to unpleasant images or ideas. There's no depth to it. Although it might look like a beautiful view and opinion, it's, it has no depth to it. It's just simple reactivity to uh, Vedana. So that's something that I find very so sobering to come back to sometimes. So what's the feeling tone aspect of this view, Pascal? You know, and see what, what can be revealed in there. Yeah? That can help release some of the clinging sometimes. Oh, unpleasant feels like this. Okay. And open the door to access something deeper. Yeah. Um, in my practice for many years, this was not a view, a clinging to views and opinion was not in my field of awareness so much. And uh, a few years back, I did a, a retreat, a long retreat, a little bit like this one. And uh, in the mid-course of the retreat, there was a changing of teams, of a team of teacher. And uh, um, maybe to contextualize it even more tonight, I would say, in the first part of that retreat, I had been doing um, the Brahma Vihara, so I was doing Mudita for uh, several weeks. And uh, I had gotten very cozy in my little Mudita world. So I had one person that I was, uh, you know, wishing that their happiness and good fortune increase and never wane. That was a one sentence, several weeks. And it was a very beautiful world I was in. It was very flowing because the person I had chosen, I had made a really good choice. <laughs> it was somebody who had beautiful qualities of heart and mind. And 
when I was saying may your, you know, may your good fortune, I was thinking a lot of their quality, may they increase and never cease, it was un, in, unimaginable that their qualities of mind would not be cultivated the way that I knew they lived their life, you know. There was no way their good fortune was going to continue their inner good fortune as I was thinking about it because of the way they lived their life. And so it was very easy and I was very protected. So there was a lot of concentration. And then the new team came and with the new team I decided that I would do vipassana for the, so look at reality. <laughs> the second part of my retreat. And so the team of teacher came and they were, uh, they were not the other team. <laughs> and uh, I started having opinions about uh, them. Very strong opinions about how they should be and what they should talk about and how they should do this and do that. And it was kind of unnoticed. And... Um, and actually, I got pretty desperate and pretty stuck. One day, I was sitting, um, sitting down uh, to meditate, and I just—I was in such a bad state because of my views and opinion. I thought, you know, next week in the in a few days in the local paper, you might find on the front page, "Yogi found drawn in their opinions," <laughs> like literally death by opinions, <laughs> self-imposed. Because it was so incredibly painful, and because even more, because I was very sensitive, because of the practice I had been doing, I had uh, it's as, as if uh, somebody had removed my. Uh, I was I was regressed a bit, you know, like we get on retreat, we can get very young, and it felt like I had a blanket. I was secluded from the entrances with my concentration blanket, and I had my. <laughs> Meta teddy bear, you know. And somebody had taken my meta teddy bear and my blanket. And I was like, I was a little like this, and suddenly there was this new team of agitated beings. And, and uh, luckily enough, one of the teachers was not my assigned teacher, just they, they, in a question I asked in the hall, they, they got, this person is not well. <laughs> They need a rescue, you know, they need a, a boy or whatever you call it, you know, like they're drowning in their opinions. And so I met with this person and they said, you know, this is what's going on. <laughs> you don't have to show me all the letters you wrote. I'm sure you, I'm sure, I'm sure you wrote a few. We're going to go very slowly out of this, you know, and uh, this person, this teacher was very helpful. And then I found my way out. And after this, I was shaken deeply around opinions and how opinions can create a lot of suffering for self and eventually for others, of course. You know? So I became very aware of this. And of course, I get caught in opinions still. Uh, even uh, just a few minutes ago before coming here, I heard myself say something. I said something that was, the saying was fine, but the, the, the tightening around it was very surprising. And suddenly I thought, whoa, I have, here's an opinion I'm clinging to, you know, because there was a tightening in the heart. And so, and so this practice of bringing attention to that aspect of reality, yeah? Our views and opinions, uh, from the Buddhist perspective, you could think, are meant to bring freedom, are meant to bring ease of mind, release, um, dispassion in a way, you know. So it's interesting to uh, view the opinions we have in that light. Okay, is this bringing calm to the mind? Is this view bringing calm? Is this view liberating or entangling? This is an, a, a, an interesting way to look at a view and an opinion that we would have. Yeah? And this way might be revealed sorry, uh, some views that we have that are actually uh, even more dangerous than just clinging to a view, but clinging to an uh, unwise view. In Buddhism, we talk about wise view and unwise view. So clinging to a view is painful. Clinging to an unwise view, for example, a view that this is without consequences, 
this action of mind or speech or, um, or, or body is going to have no repercussions whatsoever. This is not the training of the mind. You know, the view that things don't have consequences is a view that can be very dangerous because it makes me, especially when you know, remember when I said when there is a, a tendency, an afflictive or a tendency of the mind that is active, we lose the wisdom we have gained. It's with mindfulness that the wisdom can be uh, uh, brought back. Yeah. So if I'm under the influence of greed, I might really think, and it happens all the time in this society we live in, that there's no, no, just take this, you know, I deserve it, there's no consequences to it, you know, it's not mine, but hey, you know. And up suddenly something is revealed later, you know, that there was a consequence. It had an impact on the safety of others or on the, the way people perceive me suddenly, you know. So, um, so cling to a view of permanence, a view of satisfaction, the view of, uh, um, of self, selfing. It's really, really mine. It's my bicycle, you know, and then it's gone, you know. If there's a real clinging there uh, to a wrong view, the pain is going to be doubled in a way. So this is what we're doing here. We're clarifying views about the world. We're learning also the pain of clinging to a view. Yeah? And sometimes, I think I said this before, I really believed in, I believe in this, soaking in clinging a little bit more so that I can really feel the ouch aspect of it, the devastation of clinging. So not to reject clinging so quickly. It holds a lot of information. So when I'm in it, Let's bring mindfulness in there and see like, wow, being uptight about this, that they should have done that. There's one particular view that uh, I had at some point, uh, un unnoticed. So I'm, I'm coming, uh, uh, bringing back the idea of the, uh, the disease I live with. And so for many years, I, um, I would spend time thinking, if I didn't have that, I could so easily travel, let's say, that was one of the views, you know, I could travel in uh, India because my medication would not need to be refrigerated and, and you know, it, it my immune system would be stronger so there wouldn't be so much danger of visiting countries where my system isn't used to be and, you know, and if I didn't have uh, this, then there was a view of that, uh, of a, this other life without uh, the HIV. And uh, it seemed actually that it was giving me a rest from my life. You know, we could sit on the cushion like you are and take a little break and just think of my life if there was not that, you know. And one time, because of prior moment of uh, mindfulness, there was suddenly a moment of mindfulness just at the moment of coming back from that view, from that trip. And suddenly I saw that this was actually not helpful, although it seemed like something, a fantasy that was, uh, that was um, good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. <laughs> it was actually not, because it was, compared to my life, it was miserable. You know, my, 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 my real samsaric life was definitely failing compared to that made-up fictional generation of the mind, you know. And so there was this, this, uh, this view got corrected. Oh, this is not for my benefit. This is not for my benefit. I can let go of that view right then and there. And then the little funny part uh, about this is that um, I, I, had, I had this uh, kind of little uh, fantasy or this little thing I saw is that I would actually marry my life. So I imagine a, you know, kind of a wedding setup where I was there with my life and I was uh, committing to my life, saying, I'm not going to look at other people's life 
and want their life. I'm not, when I go to bed at night, I'm going to cherish my life. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to sh cherish my life again. When I walk in the street, I'm going to walk with my life. You know, I really want, for better and worse, or whatever, however we say it, you know, I want to commit to this life. And there was this wedding of moi and my life. <laughs> And it, bring a, it brought some ease into my, the, there's a level of acceptance, of uh, a better view of uh, what was happening in this life and how one could be committed to that version, you know. And uh, the beauty of it uh, came out in a way, another way that I was thinking about it often is, uh, it felt like I had um, the image I use is a spare, like a long spare, huh? Spear. I know, I knew every time there's something wrong. <laughs> Hyena, spear, <laughs> subterfuge. So it felt like I was uh, living with a spear, spear, a spear on the side, you know, and like I would want to have a normal life, you know, just go through a door, get inside the car, but you know, there's a spear spear, you know, coming out of the side, you know, so I have to go in the doorway in this way. I want to get in the car like a normal person, but, you know, I have to go like this because there's this spear, you know, and, you know, and, you know it, it would always be in the way <laughs> somewhere. But then, like, how can I live my life with a, a spear? You know, is it possible to live a whole life with accommodating, giving space to that thing, you know? And uh, actually, yes. Actually, there's some beauty in it. There's some, how can one have gracefulness with the spear on the side, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and actually, yeah, it's, it's possible. So you see how the view changed that uh, there should be another life or if there was another life. Yeah. In these four categories of sense, pleasure, views, rites and rituals and uh, um, clinging to notions of self, attachment to self. There's this division in four, but in actuality, they're often mixed together, you know. So if somebody comes in late, uh, you'll think, you know, rites and rituals, this convention, we come in time on the sitting, you know, so you might cling to this because they're uh, destroying my concentration. So there's a little selfing in there, you know, and it's about sense pleasure that it was quiet here and I liked it. And now I don't, you know, so, it's, so in actuality, it might be more mixed than the four divisions. So as I'm talking, I'm aware that we could have put maybe that example in another uh, um, of the root categories. Yeah? Okay, so there's our few thoughts about views and opinions. So I'll talk now about uh, rites and ritual, and I make this much larger. The way I, I, I think about that category is uh, rites, ritual, conventions, and norms. I make it very wide how we can cling to conventions and, and norms. Um, and so, I spoke, I think, last week about, um, about the two realities, the conventional reality and, uh, and the ultimate reality. I always uh, liked the idea of convention, conventions. I come from the world of uh, theater a lot. And in the theater, it's very, uh, did I talk about this a little bit here? I get mixed with my stories sometimes. Uh, in the world of theater, conventions are very, very important. So, you know, we'll agree that uh, we're brother and sisters. So we have this big fight and, and, you know, and everybody in the audience agrees that we're brother and sisters. And, oh my God, the way he talks to his sister. And then, and then everybody goes back home. And, you know, if Rebecca was to call me after the play and say, Pascal, you're my brother. I can't believe you talk like... I would say, hold on, this was a convention. This was an agreement. This is a theater convention. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> this is very important. You know, you leave it there when you, you know, it works. We agree on that, but it's not ultimately true. 
you know? It's just good for the moment it lasts. Like, why do I, I like convention at the theater? One example that was so delightful for me was um, there was this play. It was happening in summer in, in my, in my uh, country uh, where I lived. The, we have a lot of mosquitoes. And I think there is some here too. So it's part of uh, the cultures that when you come in, you close the door because this, the flies and the mosquitoes come in. And in that play, it was really fun because every time it was a family and the mother was inside and every time one of the kids would come in, uh, there was a little um, recorder that was there and they would press play and you would hear wind and things like this and they would not press stop and so the mom would say close the door and then they would come back to the, the side of the stage where they came in and they would press stop and the sound would stop so there was a convention like, this is the door the door is a recording a recorder making the sound of outside and even in the winter there would be more like stormy and every time somebody would come in the play they wouldn't they would never close the door and the mom would always say close the door the flies you know <laughs> they would go back and and i was sitting there and think ah oh, this is i love conventions cuz now here's 900 people who agree this is a door but we all know it's not a door but this is delightful it's conventions you know and so and so this applies also in the life we live where there are conventions that we agree on but they're not ultimately true. It's just agreement. I give you the, this example. One time I was on retreat and we had a little group meeting like we have sometimes on the shorter retreats. And a group of us came together with one of the monks who was leading the retreat. And one person who was there said, I'm, I'm really bugged because I own a restaurant in town and every few weeks, there's somebody who comes and they do a, a graffiti on the window of my restaurant. Graffitis are illegal. This is my restaurant, you know. What am I supposed to do with this, you know? This is bringing suffering to me. And so the monk said, hmm, now, like, I think it's important that you bring uh, you bring the two realities together, you balance the two realities. That's how you might be able to relieve some of your suffering. Conventionally, we all agree that there's a law. You don't paint on walls. There's an agreement. But it's conventional. Anybody can break it at any time they want. You know? And it's your restaurant also is a convention. You go to a lawyer, they write papers, and we all agree when you have these papers, this is your house. But it's not possible to own anything, really. So if you bring a little bit more back of the ultimate reality in your conventional and you see the nuances of both, maybe you're going to let go of the clinging to it's really mine, it's really the law. Yeah? So we can cling to conventional reality in a way that uh, is out of proportion. It's not balanced with ultimately, uh, yeah? Uh, is it this week, last week, that, uh, last week for sure, that Joseph used this idea of like you come back to sit here and suddenly somebody's in your seat, you know? That's a place where you would really want to bring back the ultimate reality. <laughs> you know, that ah, ultimately it was agreed that it was mine, but it, this is shaky. This is conditional. This is, it's not stable, grounded, permanent reality. It's a reality that is movable, you know. And so we need to bring attention to this. To me, the rites, rituals, so I say, I include in that the convention, the ways to do things. Uh, there's also the norms, norms. Um, so how we can cling individually or as a groups or society to norms, really reminding somebody of the norm, you know. There's a Rita Gross that I, uh, is a Buddhist uh, author, I remember writing a little article in the Inquiring Mind where she, there was this paragraph that stood out so strongly for me. Uh, she was writing, although I clearly have a female body, 
There's no doubt about this. Um, uh, people always assume that either I have children, I, and it's not a given that I have children, could have children. The form doesn't say that. Wanted, ever wanted children, you know, likes this or that. It doesn't come with the f- shape that this person has this kind of temperament or likes this and not that, you know. And she, and she was saying, and constantly I'm reminded that in, when you have this form, this is what you like. This is what you don't like. This is your, you know, she was saying also people assume that my partner will be of that sex. But the form doesn't say that. But there's a kind of a norming that I'm reminded of constantly, you know. And the clinging to this. Uh, that's one aspect of it. There's so many other norms, you know. Here in this room, there's many norms, you know. And so when, when we can see, when we cling to norms or conventions like this, or when another, these things have to be seen internally and externally. So we can see also the suffering when another group of being cling to a norm. You know, like me at the waterfall was a place where there was a norming that was happening very strongly. You know, men don't take five minutes pictures of other men, it's not okay, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so we can see, we can be alert to that, how norming happens. Um, and to me, the beautiful practice is to become aware of norms and see the way that I buy into them, or the way that they're useful, or the way that I can cling or other can cling. And then have the freedom to follow the norm or to veer from the norm to, you know. And so the freedom in that realm, this is also, it's going to have to be done. The freedom that we're looking for is not going to be only personal, psychological, I don't know how to put it. It's going to be also societal. It's going to be about the way we live, the way we promote freedom, defend freedom, offer freedom and protection, and the way that we cut it for some groups, you know, and the way it's, uh, it's cut for some uh, targeted groups uh, of us. Or, yeah? And you see the clinging, that rites and ritual clinging, you see it in the religious beliefs and, and how uh, there can be so much clinging and so much suffering that comes in the world around that area of clinging. And so that's one thing that we uh, want to become aware of also and find freedom in. Yeah? There's a beautiful, um, I always forget, I should just say, some really wise person once said, and they happen to practice Buddhism also, Tibetan Buddhism more particularly, but they said, although my view is vast as the sky, my attention to details is as refined as um, a um, particle of um, barley flour. Although my view is vast as the sky, my attention to details is as refined as a little piece of barley flour. Yeah? This talks about having a wide view and knowing uh, conventions, knowing when to respect them, knowing, knowing how to be with, with them, you know, in a very precise way. So, although it's conventional that this is uh, my singing sheet and that this one is your singing sheet, although it's just conventional reality, it's not ultimately true. And I see that my view is vast as the sky. You cannot own a printed sheet of paper with a chant on it. It's not possible ultimately to own paper. Conventionally, I'm very detailed. I really respect your things, you know, in this way. And how can we play that dance freely and gracefully again of knowing the world of convention, knowing how to respect the convention so there's no um, hurt being done, or knowing how 
courageously sometimes breaking the conventions because of a greater good, you know, or something like that. So I'm a saved by the bell around selfing. <laughs> it's a very wide uh, subject here. Maybe I'll just do a few quotes to finish around the, this last uh, one of selfing, in which we spent already some time, but it's something we can spend much more time. But this is Ajahn Amaro and Pasano from uh, the island here. Trying to find a me without a world that burdens it is like trying to run away from your own shadow. No matter how fast you run, the effort is bound to fail as the one form generates the other. Trying to find a me without a world that burdens it is like trying to run away from one's own shadow. It's not possible. When there is this me clinging identification, that's a very, sometimes not subtle at all, but sometimes extremely subtle form of clinging, identification, me. When there's a me-making, there is a world, suddenly. There's me, other. And this appears viable, but it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of defending, strategizing, you know. So this view, this, this separation is very painful. So what part of what we're doing here, again, is to release some of that view, some of that extra charge that has this meaning, owning uh, uh, like this. This is the Buddha. I am. This is a conceived idea. This I am, this is a conceived idea, made up idea generated in the mind, fiction idea. This is a conceived idea. I will be. This is a conceived idea. I will not be. This is a conceived idea. Conceived ideas are a disease, a boil, a dart. So it's laid out pretty uh, (laughs) plainly, I would say. Here's another version. 99% of our thoughts are about me, and there isn't one. No wonder we're stressed out. That's Wu Wei Wu. So... Again, this uh, seeing how this arises, this owning, this meing, and the, maybe you can identify the separation that comes in it and feel it, the texture of it, of being separated from the, wa- the world. Sometimes I think of it as, uh, you know, the tapisserie. Tapestry. So the tapestry. And, um, you know, in the tapestry, there's a unicorn or a woman playing a harp. And we really think that there is a unicorn. There is a unicorn. But when you start doing vipassana, mindfulness, you start to see how when you, you know, you pull on a little string, you know, the harp is coming, the woman is coming, the unicorn is coming. You know, they're all enmeshed together. It appears like there is a unicorn, unicorn standing out. But when you sit here and start to see how conditional things are, how this could not happen without this, 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 and this that is happening, that nothing that I experience is outside of the world. It's totally enmeshed in it. I begin to see this, how much part of the tapestry I am, you know, and that there is just a conceiving, 
a, pro, an, a delimitating, and that's very arbitrary, you know, that I, this, you know, this is mine, but this, this is not mine. This is mine. This is not mine. This is not yours. This is yours. You know? It's important that in our life, as we grow, we make the differentiation. You know, that's part of the evolution we, as a baby. And, you know. But as a spiritual being, this we can let go of slowly. This, 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 this uh, way of dividing reality. And maybe move on to something else. What's here? How to take care of it? I think that's all I'll say uh, about uh, about this. The Buddha, if it were not possible to free the heart from entanglement in greed, hatred and fear, I would not teach you to do so. Luminous is consciousness, brightly shining in its nature but it becomes clouded by the attachments that visit it. And my friends, it is through this establishment of the lovely clarity of mindfulness that you can let go of grasping after past and future, overcome attachment and grief, abandon all clinging and anxiety, and awaken an unshakable freedom of heart here now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.